0: Welcome to the Feast of Tabernacles. Welcome to this time that points us to the Kingdom of God, the thousand-year rule of Jesus Christ and the saints on this earth. I hope that your feast is off to a wonderful start so far today. And in this message, I'd like to talk to you more about what this time pictures, the Kingdom of God. I'd like to talk to you about the Law of God as it goes forth from Jerusalem throughout the world and what it means, what it will pretend for all of mankind, and how real it will be. I'd like to start with a story. A number of years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to visit some of God's people, our brethren in Ireland. And while we were there, a couple was sharing with us a situation with an older shut-in lady. She had been a long-time church member. She'd been in the church for a long time. She'd known the truth for a long time. But she couldn't get to services anymore. So once every week or two, perhaps once a month, this couple would bring tapes to her, sermon tapes that she could listen to in her nursing home. And she would listen to them all day long. She could no longer read, but she could listen to the tapes. And when these brethren arrived with the tapes, she would thank them and she would say, thank you for bringing my friends to me. You see, she listened to these tapes all the time and the minister's, giving the sermons, became her friends. But as these individuals would show up at the nursing home, they'd walk into the room. And one of the first things out of this lady's mouth was, Can you see it? She'd say in her Irish brogue. Can you feel it? Can you taste it? And of course, she was referring to the kingdom of God. She was asking them, Can you see the kingdom of God? Can you feel the kingdom of God? Can you taste it? She knew that she would not be around on this earth for very much longer. And that in the next second of her consciousness, she would not only die, but she would be resurrected, as we depicted and as we reviewed a few days ago at the Feast of Trumpets, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trumpet. She knew she would be raised. And she would meet Jesus Christ in the air. And she would return with the saints and Christ to this earth. And the kingdom would be established. She had her mind focused on the kingdom. Seeing what it was about. Touching it and feeling it. It was real to her. How real is God's kingdom to you? What does it mean to you? Can you see it? Can you touch it? Can you taste it? Can you feel it? In the message today, I want to talk more about this, and I want you to think with me about what the kingdom of God really means. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2 to begin. Isaiah chapter 2, and let's review one of the pivotal scriptures, one that we review a lot, but we're going to take this scripture as our springboard and move forward and think about what it really means, what it's going to look like when this scripture is actually fully in play. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 3. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn war anymore. But the law will go forth from Jerusalem. Have you ever wondered or thought about what it will be like when the entire world keeps the law of God and lives God's way? Have you ever pondered what the world will look like when the law of God is the only law in the land? Think about that. What will it be like when all people living truly live by God's statutes, by His commandments? What will it be like to live in a world where people actually live by every word of God? My purpose today... Brethren, is to review some of the scriptures, and just some, review some of the scriptures that relate to God's law being kept in the kingdom of God during the thousand-year reign of Christ and the saints, us, on the earth. I also want to reflect with you on what life will actually be like during the millennium as God's laws are fully in force. Brethren, what I'd like you to do with me today for this short time is to use God's Holy Spirit and to use your God-given imagination to embark with me on a journey, to begin and to try to picture what it's going to be like in the kingdom of God when God's law is truly in force. For those of you who are teenagers, for those of you who are adults, talking about God's law in the kingdom may not seem real it may not seem like something fun, something enjoyable, but I hope by the time we're done today, you'll feel that it's extremely important. You'll be excited about what life is going to be like when God's law permeates the earth. Turn with me to Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2. And in this book, we get an interesting glimpse into how the law is going to impact the earth. The book of Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter 2, we'll start reading in verse 14. And we read, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. What does that mean to you? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. When you think about the sea, the ocean, the ocean covers the earth. It it doesn't cover the earth with a thin layer, an inch or a couple of centimeters. The earth is covered by miles in some cases, kilometers of water, fully covered. It's fully impregnated with this water. And we're told in this scripture that the knowledge of God will fully cover the earth, just like the seas and the oceans, the water of them covers the earth. Very powerful verse as we begin to think about it. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 47 as we look more into this topic of the law of God permeating the earth. Ezekiel chapter 47. We'll start reading here in verse 1 of Ezekiel 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. This is a vision of Ezekiel. And there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar, east of the temple mount. And ultimately, taking it miles and miles away, is the desert. You have the Middle East. The desert, arid regions of the world. And the waters are going to be flowing from underneath the temple here. Verse 8, skipping down. Then he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the valley and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. Its waters are healed. And it shall be that everything that moves wherever the rivers go will live there will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the water goes. You may have reviewed on the Feast of Trumpets the meaning of those of the trumpet plagues. You may have personally reviewed in your study, Revelation chapter 16, talking about these trumpet plagues, these bowl plagues that are going to occur right before the return of Christ. One of those events is the earth, the waters of the earth will be turned to blood, all of them, and every creature in the sea will die. This vision that Ezekiel has is of those waters being made to live again, sea creatures, lake creatures living once again when all were dead. This is a powerful vision that Ezekiel had, Jeremiah chapter 31, if you'll turn there with me. Look some more at some of these concepts, these topics. Jeremiah 31, and verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Verse 33 Think about this. Everyone who's alive at the time of Christ's return will have exposure to the Spirit of God. Christ will begin to write His law in their hearts and in their minds. These people who've never known the truth before, who God has never called before, who've had a veil over their face, we're told, they'll have the law written within them like you do now and like I do now yet it will be open to all to be a part of. So where does the living water that heals the planet and people's minds and people's hearts come from? Jeremiah chapter 2. Turn back with me. We get a glimpse, we get an idea, we get actually a very clear indication of where this living water comes from. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13 For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Where does the living water come from? What did it say? They have forsaken me. This is the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the one who later became Jesus Christ they've forsaken, who is the fountain of living waters. The living waters that heal the earth. The living waters that cover the earth. The knowledge of God that covers the earth as the waters cover the sea comes from Christ. Jesus Christ. And what does Christ want for the people who live through the tribulation? Who live into the millennium that you and I are going to have the opportunity to work with? John chapter 10. Why is Christ the fountain of living water. What does that mean for the world? John chapter 10 and verse 10. Let's take a look. John 10.10 reads, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come, says Jesus Christ, that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The Greek word for abundantly is perisos. What does it mean? It means supremely. It means beyond measure, extraordinary, much more than all. Christ came so that this world one day will be able to have life. And they'll be able to have it more abundantly, extremely, more than is so, more than we can imagine. That's why Christ came. That's why the waters are going to cover the, sea, the earth. or the, Excuse me, that's why the living waters will cover the earth. That's why the knowledge of God will flow forth from Jerusalem and cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Christ wants people made in his image to be able to live an abundant life, a life they could not live until his return. Let's look at a few more scriptures as we begin here. Joel chapter 2. Here in the book of Joel, we again see another prophecy about the future and about what it's going to be like when Jesus Christ returns. Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. This Holy Spirit that we have been given or been given access to. Just a few today and over the years will be given to everyone. Everyone will have access to it. They'll be able to know and understand the truth for the first time in their lives. Psalm 119. We'll flip back to a familiar scripture here, hopefully. A scripture and a principle that's everlasting and it does not go away. Psalm 119, and we'll start reading in verse 165. Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. As the law goes forth, permeates the entire earth, there will be peace, everlasting peace, and a type of peace that has never been experienced before. What do you think about that peace? What does that mean to you? As you sit there and you ponder and you think about the peace of God's kingdom, a time pictured by this, the Feast of Tabernacles, what does the peace mean to you? What does true world peace mean? Let's talk about this peace that will be experienced by the whole world as you turn to Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel 20 gives us more indication of why God brings this peace and why He hasn't brought it currently. Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12. Moreover, I also gave them, talking about Israel, my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me that they may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes and they despised my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they greatly defile my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury on them in the wilderness and consume them. I was talking about ancient Israel and the 40 years that they spent in the wilderness and the time that was spent and used up in a way. When the Israelites had to die in the wilderness, they never got to experience the promised land. Why did God let it happen then? Why is God going to let something like this happen again to the descended nations of Israel? Because they don't keep His law, and they don't keep His Sabbaths, not only the weekly Sabbath, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and here the Feast of Tabernacles. We're alone in the world, you might say, as we keep this day. We look outside of this facility that we're meeting in, and life goes on. It's just another day in the life of so many billions of people around the world. They're not keeping this holy time, this most exciting time of the year. Let's read on in verse 19. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. God's statutes and his judgments are critical. They magnify the Ten Commandments. Verse 20. Hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Keep these things, God says. My statutes, my judgments, my commandments. Keep the feasts that I've given you. Keep the weekly Sabbath. Why? Deuteronomy chapter 28. Let's go back to a familiar passage of Scripture. We know Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 to be the blessings and the cursings. These magnify the covenant that was made with Israel and ultimately the new covenant made with us. God says, if you obey me, if you do what I say, if you show me that you love me by obeying me, I'm going to bless you beyond what you can believe. Christ, we read, said with abundant life. But if you disobey, if you don't do what I say, you're going to be cursed. You're not going to have the opportunity to live an abundant life. Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse... Well, we'll just skip through here and look at some of these cursings for disobedience before we look at the blessings for obedience. Chapter, verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28. But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the Lord, the voice of the Lord your God, to observe Him carefully, all His commandments and His statutes. This is what we're to obey and observe. The commandments and the statutes. These are what will be necessary to obey and observe in the kingdom of God. These things that I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be, verse 16, in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket for your needing. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body. So, food will be lacking. You won't be able to grow food if you don't obey. You'll have difficulty having children. Verse... 21, the Lord will make the plague cling to you until He's consumed you from the land which you're possessing. Verse 22, He'll strike you with consumption and fever and inflammation and severe burning fever. With the sword, with a scorching, scorching and mildew, they shall pursue you until you perish. All kinds of plagues will happen. Verse 27, the Lord will strike you with boils Of Egypt with tumors with the scab with the itch we see these things all around the world today we see famines we see diseases of all kinds that are bringing people down because they're not obeying ultimately we're told here many more things will happen foreigners will take over verse 43 the alien who's among you shall rise higher and higher above you and you shall come down lower and lower Verse 47, because you do not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness for the abundance of everything, therefore you shall serve your enemies. And we see this happening more and more, especially in the Israelite-descended nations. More and more people are coming in and taking over, buying property, beginning to own the currencies, doing all types of things. And the nations who once owned the land and owned the technologies are now selling out. So we see cursings for not obeying. Now, this will happen in the kingdom as well. What about obedience? Leviticus chapter 23. We read earlier about how God wants people to keep His Sabbaths. Leviticus 23 and verse 2. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these... Are my feasts. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You do not work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. These are God's feasts, holy times. God says, don't work, keep them, keep them holy. Come together in a holy convocation. You know, one of the interesting definitions of holy convocation. It does mean to come together, a commanded assembly, a solemn assembly, but it also means to rehearse. We are at the Feast of Tabernacles, a commanded assembly before God, and it's also a rehearsal, a rehearsal and a review of something future, a thousand years of peace on this earth. It's exciting when we think about it. It's exciting when we think about how God has put everything together so that we can appreciate it even more. Leviticus 26 and verse 3. Leviticus 26, verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and you keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. Think about the blessing. Keep my commandments. Do what I ask you. Please, God is saying. Keep the statutes that magnify and clarify those ten commandments. And you'll have rain in its season. The land will yield its produce. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage. And the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. Your land is going to produce so much that there's not going to be any lag time between crops. You'll have one crop come in and you're going to keep reaping and reaping and reaping until immediately you have to put in the ground to plant the next crop. There's going to be so much abundance. An exciting thing for obeying God. Let me read a few headlines to you, though. As we think about the world today and how it's going to be so different in the world tomorrow, do we have abundance today? Do we have threshing and reaping of crops that lasts forever, so to speak, that's continual and ongoing? No. What do we have? Here's a headline. Niger food aid is misdirected. Large numbers of children are starving to death in Niger because food aid is being misdirected, says France's Médecins Sans Frontières. An average of 40 young children are dying every day in one area in east of the country, a new study has found. Let me read you some other recent article topics that have to do with a lack of rain, with famine. Some 36 countries worldwide face serious food shortages says a recent United Nations food and agriculture report. Thirty-six countries face serious food shortages, and times haven't gotten bad yet. Here's another one. As many as 185 million people will die in Africa by the end of the century due to drought and famine conditions, a recent report says. Here's another one. Deserts are expanding as the jet stream shifts. The jet streams in the northern and southern hemispheres are drawing further apart, which is causing the deserts in between to get larger. Obviously, famine and drought are going to follow in greater quantities as we see God, the one who controls the weather, beginning to affect global climate change. Here's another headline. Britain facing worst drought in a century. And certainly many nations around the world are facing their worst droughts in hundreds of years. The times now are going to change when abundance begins to reign, the abundant life that will be ushered in by the return of Christ. Leviticus 26, verse 6. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts. Think about this. Is there peace in the land today? Do people around the world, all over the world... Go to sleep every evening peacefully, not worrying, not wondering what's going to happen tonight. Will a bomb go off? Will their alarms go off? Will someone break in and take my wife or my children or my husband? There's not peace like that today. You will chase your enemies and they shall fall by the sword before you. This is the promise for obedience, keeping the laws and the statutes and the judgments. Your enemies will fall before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. God will fight our battles if we obey. Is that happening today? Do we have peace? Think about it. We're experiencing worldwide terror alerts daily. We read about the car bombs, the assassinations, the kidnappings. We have ongoing conflicts in Iraq, in Afghanistan, continuing unrest in Palestine and Jerusalem, the Congo, South Africa, and Niger filled with civil unrest, guerrilla wars in the Philippines, in Indonesia, in Sri Lanka, possible nuclear confrontation with Iran, more confrontation with the United States and China over the issue of Hong Kong, Russia and Chechnya fighting these border wars, terrorist attacks in Russia by the Chechnyan rebels. Also, Russian cities are being torn apart, as we read in the papers, by the Russian mafia, ongoing street battles that the government can't control. But it's going to be different. This is not going to happen anymore. This is why we're here celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, because... This time, this time that we live in, this time that is given to Satan, the devil, when people won't keep, do not want to keep, do not want to even hear about God's commands, will change when Christ returns and we will keep the commands of God. The world will. They'll live by His commandments and His statutes and peace will be ushered in. Brethren, let's look more specifically at what obedience to God's commandments and statutes will look like. Please, perhaps say a little prayer as we begin this. Use your imagination. You know, we're told that we see through a glass dimly. We have an idea, we have a bit of a perspective on what it's going to be like in the kingdom of God. Somebody recently remarked, made a comment to my son, who is actually my five year old son, who is doing a little bit of evangelizing talking about God's kingdom and wanting this individual to get excited about it with him. The individual, this adult, who knew the truth years ago, made a comment that we really don't know a whole lot about what it's going to be like. I think my five-year-old son didn't know quite what to think because in his five-year-old mind he knows quite a bit about what it's going to be like. Come with me on this journey as we ponder over the vision that God has given us in his word about what the kingdom will be like. We're going to look at a couple of commandments and a couple of more specific statutes and think about what the world will be like when these things are implemented, when they go forth and cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Exodus chapter 20. As we look at this first commandment, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 4, "'You shall not make for yourselves a carved image.'" Any likeness of anything that is in heaven, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and who keep my commandments. Think about this. Know Carved images, no likeness of anything should be worshipped. How is that going to be different in the world tomorrow? What is it like today? Ezekiel chapter 14 gives us a little bit more clarification on this very important principle of no images to be worshipped. Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 3. Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. And put them before that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? God's saying these people have set up idols in their hearts. They're not even physical. Their ideas, their thoughts. And they've come between God and them. God says, should I even listen to them? Because they're worshiping these idols in their minds. What is the price today of idolatry? How rampant is idolatry around the world today? What do you see of idolatry around you? My family's had the opportunity to visit a number of developing nations around the world. It's been a blessing. It's been wonderful to get to know some of you, God's people, in these areas. The areas we haven't been to, we pray for you, many, many times But one of the things we like to do when we visit developing nations particularly is go visit the markets because it gives us a feel for the countries, for the nations that we're visiting, what the people's lives are like. And one of the things I've noticed as we visited markets around the world is that there are always images carved out of wood, out of stone, formed out of precious metals in some cases, images that can be worshipped, that can be taken home and relished. What is the price of idolatry today? How does idolatry relate to dollar figures? How expensive is it? Think about the great Catholic churches around the world. When I was a young boy, we actually got to go to the feast in Mexico a couple of times. And we would go as a family and we'd go through the markets in some of the local communities. It seemed like in every small community... In the towns we were in in Mexico, there was always a Catholic church, some larger than others. But I remember being six or seven years old and walking into several different Catholic cathedrals. And on the front steps of these cathedrals, as you walked in to the cathedral, were one or two people or more sometimes begging for money. They had a handout, they had a can, and they were asking for money on the steps of the Catholic church. And we would walk into the church, and what would we see? these vast high ceilings in these major cathedrals, big organs, beautiful edifices erected on the backs of poor people. They were encouraged and forced in some cases to give all they had to build these beautiful facilities inlaid in gold and silver and tapestries and stained glass. Poor people, yet they had these magnificent buildings What about the fantastic Buddhist temples we see all around the world? We recently moved away from an area near Denver, Colorado. And shortly before we moved, Denver, Colorado actually erected a Buddhist temple to the tune of roughly 40 million American dollars. Denver is not the only city in the United States that's done this recently. And as we go around the world, we see Buddhist temples, grand edifices, with billions of dollars ultimately pumping into these buildings to worship an ideal that is wrong. Yes, it has some truth to it, but ultimately it's been a tool to lead millions of people, hundreds of millions of people astray and away from the true God. What about the jewelry industry? Think about it. Think about the jewelry that has been created to worship with. Earrings, necklaces, all kinds of pieces of jewelry aimed at these religious symbols. Mary worship, virgin and child, crosses, prayer beads. Think about the Christmas trees. Think about Christmas goods. Think about Easter-related products, Easter bunnies and chocolates and these fake eggs. Think about the airline industry and the travel industry and how it's impacted by these pagan holidays. The greatest amount of travel occurs around the world in most developing nations on these holidays. They're a catalyst for money being spent. Think about some of the idols of the heart, gods of the heart, homes, lavish homes, expensive cars. Last Sunday, I was mowing the lawn for for one of our church members. It took me about an hour and a half, and as I began mowing the lawn, there was a gentleman across the street that was washing his new car. And I mowed the lawn, and I mowed the lawn. The day got warmer. About an hour and a half later, I finished, and the gentleman across the street was still washing his car. He hadn't started vacuuming it. He didn't even put wax on it. He was just waxing down this beautiful new car. He probably had an hour or two remaining of work on this as his wife sat in the house. He wasn't spending time with his children. He wasn't reading his Bible. He was spending time with this idol that he had. We have homes around the world where people spend hundreds of millions of dollars, boats that people buy, all types of things that become gods that people worship and put before the one true God. What will it be like, brethren, when there's no more idolatry? What will it be like When God, our awesome Father in heaven, is the only God that is worshipped on this whole earth. Brethren, wars have been and are fought over idolized religious views. My religion is better than your religion, so I'm going to fight you for it and kill you and kill all of your people. They're going on, wars like this are going on now but they're false ideas. What will it be like when only God is worshipped, honored, feared, adored, and loved? Matthew 22. Let's take a look here in the book of Matthew at some more words of Jesus Christ about putting God first, Him being the only God that we have. Matthew 22, verse 36. "'Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law?' what did Jesus Christ say? You probably know it by heart. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Obviously, this doesn't happen today. But it will one day. 1 John 2 and verse 4. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Think about that. If we love God, we keep his commandments. We do what he asks us to do. Obviously, this world today doesn't love God in the way that God wants to be loved. But in the world tomorrow, in God's kingdom, when the knowledge of God and the law of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, people will truly love God. They'll want to obey Him. What will that be like? No more worship of idols. No more spending billions and probably trillions of dollars on idolatry, on false things. But the focus will be on the Father and on the Son. What an awesome time that will be. Those who do love God will keep all of His commandments. And idolatry will be gone. It will be wiped away through the process of the millennium. Let's look more specifically at a statute of God. Something that is magnified or, excuse me, magnifies the law of God. The second greatest commandment we didn't read, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves. These statutes, in many cases, show us how to love God and how to love our neighbor more effectively. <clears throat> One of the statutes that we're given is actually has to do with something that many in Western nations don't really appreciate. But in developing nations, you have a very much greater appreciation for, and that's human waste disposal. Not overly exciting to think about. In Western countries, we have flush toilets. We go to the toilet. We do what we need to do, taking care of the physical abilities that God has given us. We flush the toilet. Our human wastes are gone, and they're treated, and we don't have disease. We're blessed in that way. But did you know that there are over 2 million deaths... Worldwide, from diarrhea every year. Think about that. Two million deaths every year. That's 10% of the population of Australia die every year from diarrheal disease. Disease that could easily be prevented if people kept God's statute. There's a high incidence of diarrheal disease all over the world. I actually had the opportunity a number of years ago to work in a rural community in south-central Alabama in the United States. And certainly the United States has been very blessed, thanks to the promises to Abraham. But this community is actually or was actually the 13th poorest community in the United States at that time. Many of the individuals in the community lived below the poverty level. They did not have a regular income. And I was working on a public health project. Part of what we had to do was begin to work with the community to teach them how to reduce diarrheal disease. In fact, their incidence of diarrheal disease was so high that the United States Centers for Disease Control was concerned, and they wanted changes to take place. Roughly a quarter of the population of children in certain pockets of the county had diarrheal disease at any given time. And in fact, kids were dying of diarrhea in the United States because God's principles weren't kept I remember looking at certain communities and people lived in homes and they actually had flush toilets and they would go to the bathroom go to the toilet flush the toilet and those human wastes would wash off onto a hill behind the house just into the backyard of course the children would be playing back there the dogs would be playing back there they would come into the house children babies would be crawling on the floor they'd walk through that stuff and obviously they'd get sick People were not doing what God commanded to be done. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 23 as we think about this. Deuteronomy chapter 23, we see this statute expanded a bit. We get the picture that God is concerned about every aspect of our life and so concerned that He gives basic principles even for human hygiene. Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 12 Also, you shall have a place outside of the camp where you may go out. And you shall have an implement among your equipment. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. So when you have to go to the toilet, you leave the camp. You don't go right outside your house or your tent. You don't do it inside your tent. You go outside. You... Do what you need to do, and when you're done, you bury it with a shovel. You're supposed to have that shovel with with you. For the Lord, verse 14, the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. So God gave this principle to the Israelites to make them different than the nations around them to make them holy so that he would feel comfortable walking among them. Think about this. God wants to be among us. We're told that our bodies are the temple of his Holy Spirit. We need to take care of them to make a place for him to dwell. We also want to make the areas that we live in tolerable, much more than tolerable, welcoming to him. He doesn't want to walk around where we live And smell refuse. He doesn't want to see the flies. He doesn't want the disease to be there. So he said, take it outside the camp. And we know today that there are major public health reasons as well why God gave this commandment. Because as you take the refuse outside the camp, you dig a hole and you bury it, you don't get people sick. The natural bacteria and the bugs in the ground break it down. And in a very short period of time with some heat, from sunshine that permeates the ground, that refuse is turned into usable soil again. They're godly principles. We were created from dust. And our byproducts, our human wastes, are created to turn back to dust. That's how God made us. Many in the world don't understand this principle today. That's why over 2 million people die of diarrhea every year because they don't bury their refuse, because they're drinking contaminated water, because they're using the toilet next to a river and then going down river and drinking the water. Basic principles. What will it be like in the kingdom when this statute is kept? It's going to be awesome. No more diseases, we're told, will be on the people that obey God. Exodus chapter 15. We'll read that scripture. Exodus 15 and verse 26, breaking into the thought and said, God said, if you diligently heed, or excuse me, this is uh, Moses, I believe. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes And if we do this, what will happen? I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. A simple statute we just reviewed. What is the blessing for keeping it? Two million people don't die every year. Pretty powerful statute. Here's another statute, Leviticus chapter 25. Let's look at this and think, what is it going to be like in the kingdom of God? When these laws, when these statutes are kept. Leviticus 25 and verse 8. You shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. Seven times seven years. And the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. And you shall cause the trumpet of Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement. You shall make the trumpet sound throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land, all its inhabitants. And it shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return his possessions, and each of you shall return to his family. The jubilee year, statute of God. Every 50 years, possessions and land returns to original owners. What would it be like if that happened today, brethren, where at the end of 50 years, land reverted back to the original owners? What would that principle do for society? What will it be like? Think about it. This principle is designed to prevent tremendous buildup of wealth. Let's read down to verse 23. The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. God has the land and he gives it to people. We're told that in the millennium, the nations of Israel return to the land of Palestine. and They'll be given their original land once again. It will stay in their families. Brethren, what would it be like if your family today still had the land that it may have owned? 50, 100, 200, 500 years ago. What would be different about society? You wouldn't have the buildup of tremendous wealth. You wouldn't have rich people and rich companies buying up all types of land and owning massive properties. In the United States and in many Western countries, it used to be that a farmer owned a little plot of land and could make a living off of it. Today, big conglomerates, big companies have bought up all of that land, pushing the farmer out. And the farmer may make a little bit of money to begin with, but then there's nothing left. If this principle were in force, it would prevent the owning of big chunks of land by a very few people. Think about it. No war over land would occur anymore. Why do people go to war? Because they want land and they want... The valuable resources in the land, whether it's water or oil or gold or diamonds or whatever the natural resources might be, fertile land. If it reverted to the original owner in a period of 50 years, it wouldn't be worth going to war anymore, losing all kinds of lives just to have to give the land back in a few years. Think about the principle. It makes sense. It's so straightforward. It would prevent the ownership of land by... Governments. The government can't take your land anymore. And if they do, they have to give it right back to your family in not too long. It would keep the possession of land that God gives in the hands of those He gives it to. There would be no need for large cities in the world tomorrow. Why do people live in cities today? They don't own land anymore, they don't have a place to live anymore. And the only thing they can afford is a parcel a tiny parcel of land or maybe a floor in a large apartment building. That's why we have people living on top of each other. You know, Isaiah 5, verse 8 warns us. It says, Woe unto those who join house to house. Why? Because you don't have privacy anymore. When you own your land, when you have your own vine and fig tree, you have space. You don't have people living beside you or on top of you. You have peace. You go to bed in peace and quiet. You don't hear the toilet flushing above you. You don't hear the children screaming next to you. You don't hear the fight between a husband and a wife below you. It's quiet and it's peaceful. This is the principle of the Jubilee year. It's going to be awesome when it occurs. Years ago, my family owned several thousand acres in western pennsylvania they were dairy farmers and they had beautiful land rolling hills beautiful trees my wife and i had the opportunity to go back to that area not long ago and most of it is owned now by other people ironically the land that my family owned i cannot step on today without trespassing i have to get permission to look at the barn and in the barn where my great-grandfather milked cows. It's no longer ours. It's been far longer than 50 years. In the world tomorrow, land will be permanent in a family. And if for some reason, through some mishap, it has to be given away or taken away, it will be returned. It will be an awesome time. In God's kingdom, brethren, when people live according to God's commandments and His statutes... And his judgments. Land that is sold or leased out to others will always stay in your family. You will always have a place. People will always have land to call home. Let's look at a final point here. This is another commandment. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. What will it be like when these commandments? And these statutes are in full force. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What is it going to be like when the world keeps the Sabbath? Think with me. Come along. Imagine. What will it be like? Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. No work on the Sabbath day. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and he hallowed it. What would it be like if everyone worked six days a week? Think about it. People work today, but how many work hard and work for six days a week? If everyone worked, we would have no more welfare programs. In many nations around the world, a sizable proportion of an individual's income goes into supporting social programs. People don't give a tenth, a tithe of their income. They may give 30, 40, 50, or 60 percent of their income. To uphold social programs for some of the people that don't work. No more need for these social programs. You know what's interesting? As we read the papers of what's going on in Europe, in the economies of many European countries beginning to fall, one of the issues that's being brought up at the governmental level is cutting back on some of the social programs, cutting back on the vacation time, saying, well, maybe instead of having 10 weeks vacation, The average worker should cut back to eight or to six weeks. Of course, as you could imagine, there's social uproar. People don't want that to happen. But think about it. Ten weeks of vacation a year translates into just about a day a week. So instead of people working five-day weeks, in essence, they work four-day weeks. That's hardly six days of labor. What will it be like when people keep the first part of that command? Six days shall you work. What will it be like when people keep the second part of the Sabbath command? No one to work. Not even servants to work. No commerce on the Sabbath. No trade, no travel, no harvesting on the Sabbath. Think about it, imagine. What will it be like? We're here on the holy day of God's feast, a commanded assembly, a day when no work is to occur, and what's going on outside? Cars are rumbling by in many cases. People are working. Jackhammers are going. People are making money hand over fist. Wars are going on. People are fighting. People are killing. Televisions and stereos are booming. There's noise. There's all kinds of things happening in God's kingdom. It won't happen. Everything will be closed. People will relax. There will not be worldly distractions. In America, the most popular day to mow your lawn is on the Sabbath, on Saturday. So many of us who try and keep the Sabbath, we might go sit on our patio or go outside for a walk on the Sabbath to the tune of lawnmowers buzzing. It's not peaceful. In some cases, you can't hear the birds for the noise. What will it be like in the kingdom? I want you to think as I read to you a short story, an idea of what it could be like on a given Sabbath day in the kingdom of God. Think about putting yourself in this setting. Imagine going for a walk along a quiet beach on a Sabbath morning, listening to the wave gently lap up onto the shore, looking up at a beautiful blue sky with clouds, listening just to the sound of the birds, the breeze through the trees, and the sound of the waves on the beach. No noise, no music, no machinery, no loud noises, no fighting people, no car horns, just the sounds that God created. You might enjoy walking along the beach, and as you pass someone, you're able to smile and wish them a happy Sabbath. Perhaps you stand and you talk for a few moments about what the sabbath day means about how god created that sabbath over six thousand years ago to point to this time of the millennium the kingdom of god and you can share that with whoever you pass by because everyone will know no more will you be a an island in the middle of a a sin-filled world but everyone will know the truth and you can share it with them Perhaps as you walk along the seashore, a dolphin slides up onto the edge of the water and chirps at you, (coughs) encouraging you to come over and pet its dorsal fin. What will that be like? Maybe a sea lion waddles up out of the water and comes up and puts his nose underneath your hand, much like a dog might, and pushes on your hand until you pet the top of the sea lion's head and maybe scratch behind its little tiny ear. Then a parrot... Flies out of the forest that's nearby, out of the jungle, and props up on your shoulder, beautiful blue, green, yellow, orange parrot. And in his mouth maybe is a a bunch of grapes that he's picked for you. And you can grab that bunch of grapes out of his, his beak and begin enjoying the grapes. Maybe you sit down then, get out of the sunshine and sit down on a rock at the edge of the forest, and out of the forest tromps a tiger a Bengal tiger, and he lays down next to you and rolls over on his back until you begin scratching his tummy. And he just lays there and purrs in his big, deep purr. And you sit and you take it all in, the beautiful day that God has created for you and for all of the people made in His image. What will that be like? A little later, perhaps you have a light lunch, you get dressed in your finest apparel, and you walk all of two or three blocks down the road to services. No more long car rides, train rides, multiple day journey just to get to church, but it's just a short walk. You're able to fellowship with God's people, hear wonderfully inspired messages, and everybody leaves services talking and excited about what they've just heard, looking forward to getting together perhaps for an evening meal together. After that, maybe you go home and you get together with family members who never knew the truth in the world that we call today. But they live through the tribulation and into the millennium and God opened their minds and you are now their teacher and you all sit down to a meal, maybe eating some cheese that you've prepared from your own cows or your own goats, crackers that you've baked, bread that you've baked from your own wheat field eating pomegranates and coconuts and all kinds of melons and fresh fruits that you've grown in your very own garden, perhaps sipping on a lovely glass of wine that you've made from the grapes from your own vines. And as you sit there, you begin to talk. And your family members who've never known the truth listen intently as you tell them about God's plan, about why He created them, about their incredible potential if they overcome, if they live God's way of life, if they love God's law, about their incredible potential to be changed just like you were into a spirit being, to be a member of the family of God, to live for eternity, serving and honoring and worshiping the God of the universe and carrying out a plan that goes into eternity that we have yet to know the details about. Think about it. Your family who's never known the truth, perhaps who are persecuting you today, will sit there and will kiss your feet. We're told how beautiful are the feet of those who come preaching the law, the way of God. They will love you for what you teach, for your patience with them. They'll be excited about what you know and what you have to give. What will that Sabbath day in the millennium be like? Are you excited about it? Can you see it? Can you taste it? Can you feel it? Is it real to you? How badly do you want it? How badly do you want this world today to be gone? And for Jesus Christ to return as King of kings and Lord of lords, as lightning? How badly do you want that? How badly do you want the change in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, from a physical human being to a spirit being? How badly do you want to teach your own family and your friends and those who live through the tribulation and on into the millennium the truth of God? How badly do you want to keep that Sabbath day with them? Brethren, this is what it's all about. This is why we're here to rehearse, to look forward to that time when the commandments of God and the law of God will go to the earth and cover it as the waters cover the sea. It will be an awesome time. How real is it to you? This is just a glimpse, brethren, a teeny, tiny glimpse of what it will be like. We have ideas from the Scripture It's going to be much grander than we could ever imagine. But please, during this feast, let yourself imagine. Think about, ponder over, talk about it with your brothers and your sisters here at the feast, what God's kingdom will be like. Talk about what you look forward to, what you yearn for, what you look forward to being behind you of this world. Brethren, the Feast of Tabernacles points us toward a wonderful time, the thousand-year reign, the millennial rule of Christ and the saints, all of us on this earth. We have been called to help Christ rule during this marvelous time. During the millennium, brethren, the law will go forth as a river of living water and fill the earth and life will come forth abundantly. Obedience to that law a law that you and I are being taught now will result in peace that the world has never known. Ultimate, lasting, wonderful, incredible, unimaginable peace. Obedience, brethren, to the commandments and the statutes and the judgments will bring with it abundant blessings of food, safety, health, and true rest. We've taken a glimpse now. A glimpse. We see through a glass dimly. We've looked at... And and thought about and pondered over just a little bit about what that time, the millennium, will be like. We've talked about how today in our thinking is just the tip of the iceberg for what will come to, to pass. Brethren, take time to imagine during this feast. Read over the Ten Commandments and the statutes while you're here. Exodus chapters 20 through 23. Leviticus chapters 25 and 26, Deuteronomy chapter 4, especially the end of the chapter. Talk with your family and your friends about these things. Brethren, pray to God to help you and to help you allow yourself to get excited about why you're here, about this feast and about what it points to. The future is awesome, brethren. It is totally, wonderfully awesome. And we have a down payment, God's Holy Spirit, that says we will be a part of it so long as we continue to submit to God and allow Him to work through us. Turn with me to a final scripture in Isaiah chapter 2, please. Isaiah chapter 2. We take one last glimpse in this message of the future. Isaiah 2 and verse 1. the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Notice, they're not going to be forced. They're going to say, Come, let's go. They're going to want to be there. And he will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many peoples. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. An incredible time. Brethren, full obedience to the law of God will be the reason for this awesome and this true peace. That time is why we are here. Welcome. Welcome to the Feast of Tabernacles. Rejoice in this feast. Meditate on God's law and its meaning. And may God grant all of us a deeper zeal, excitement, and clearer vision of the awesome time ahead. Let God help you see it. Let God help you taste it. Let God help you feel what the kingdom of God will truly be like.